Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books and Political Science Podcast. My name is Heath Brown, and today I have the author of Incarceration Nation, How the United States Became the Most Punitive Democracy in the World. The book is published by Cambridge University Press, and the author is Peter Enns. Peter Enns, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Heath. Thank you very much. Yeah, such a pleasure to have you on. Uh, let's hear just a little bit about yourself before we talk about your interesting book. So, who are you? Sure. Associate Director, uh, sorry about that, Associate Professor in the Department of Government at Cornell University and Executive Director of the Roper Center for Public Opinion Research. Yeah, um, wonderful. And, and these two really interesting parts of your life, I'm sure, have contributed very much to this book that you've written. Uh, let's let's talk about the book. And, and before we get to the why, and it seems to me that this is very much a why book. Um, before we get to that, let's talk about the what. Um, that is, what do we know about the incarceration rate in the country? How has it changed over time? And, and maybe how is it different in the U.S. versus elsewhere? So tell us just about mass incarceration first. Sure. Yeah, the, probably the key factor with mass incarceration is to understand that the U.S. has the highest incarceration rate in the world. And I guess the, the, the follow-up to that is that has not always been the case. And so if we look back to the 1950s, the U.S. incarceration rate was between Finland and Denmark. So it wasn't especially anomalous. But through the 70s, uh, the U.S. incarceration rate began to rise. It continued through the 80s, 90s, and 2000s. And so it was this decades-long process that led uh, the U.S. to really be the world's most prolific imprisoner. Now, your book uh, seems to be a response to a perception of why incarceration rates have changed so dramatically in the country. Uh, before we get to your argument, what are the main camps that explain these changes? What are the what are the alternative explanations for this um, increase that you just described to us? Well, the, the there's a fair amount of agreement that policy changes were a critical factor. And so a lot of these relate to how we sentence and punish crime. And the driving forces that I think the scholarly community agrees upon were mandatory sentences, mandatory minimum requirements, where certain crimes that didn't carry prison sentences by law all of a sudden did. And 
sentence crimes that were associated with shorter sentences all of a sudden were the legislation increased the length of the sentencing time. So this was a major factor. And so the the agreement is political decisions were an important driving force in the growth of the carceral state in the U.S., where the disagreement is, has been why these political decisions were made. Why were choices made to move policy in such a punitive direction? Now, your approach to this, I think as you begin to allude, is a little different, and you're focused on public opinion. So why might public opinion be related to how punitive crime policy is? What's the What's the link here? Uh, what's the theoretical link that ties these two together? That, that's a great question, Heath, because we often think of the legal system in the U.S. as perhaps the area of politics that should be most insulated from the public. But it turns out there's a lot of reasons to expect the public's preferences to matter. One, in, in many states that have uh, ballot initiatives, the public can actually vote on legislation. And so uh, one of the most prominent examples is California's three strikes law, where a, a third felony uh, now carries, based on this uh, law, 25 years to life imprisonment. But then the other factor that is often overlooked legislators have a tremendous influence on the criminal justice system and the incarceration rate, both because they can change um, punishment requirements and what how crimes are defined in the associated sentences. And so that's what I was uh, alluding to earlier. They also, of course, influence the budget and budget um, allocations really have a major influence on the capacity of the criminal justice system. But even if we go beyond that, we need to remember in the U.S., many prosecutors and judges are elected. And there's also a fair amount of research, some of which I've done, showing that even when judges enjoy life tenure. So here I'm thinking of the Supreme Court of the United States. Supreme Court decisions tend to follow public opinion. So there's a host of reasons to expect that the public's shifting preferences are going to influence outcomes in the U.S. criminal justice system. Now, you show this in so many different ways, and some of it is is very statistical, and we can get to that in a moment. But in Chapter 3, you have this interesting historical analysis of what Republican lawmakers were thinking about crime, particularly in the 1960s. We talk a little bit about how the Nixon administration thought about crime as a policy, but also as a campaign issue? Sure. And when I was first doing this research and giving talks, uh, audience members would often say, how can public opinion be a driving force? And they, uh, Nixon would often come up as an example, that Nixon was campaigning on being tough on crime. Nixon was leading the agenda. So I decided to look into this. And the, one of the key puzzles for me was if Nixon was leading the way why did his 1968 campaign emphasize law and order and being tough on crime? That was such a priority. Yet in 1960, in his unsuccessful campaign, that wasn't the case. He wasn't mentioning crime or law and order. So I was puzzling about why this change, because if he was leading the way, I would think he would do it at, at, at both. This would be if this was his, his political preference. But it turns out and I got it. One way I got at this was looking at internal memos from Nixon's campaign. And what we see is they were polling the public. They were looking at other polls at the time in 68. And 
kept finding in the data that the public was concerned with crime, public wanted a tougher approach, and these internal memos show that they were the campaign was crafting a strategy to address these public concerns. Now, you also collect a lot of public opinion data to write this book. Um, what did you turn to to understand the changes in attitudes towards crime? Is this a single poll that's been taken over time or, or tell us just about the data collection that you did? Yeah, it, it really required going to hundreds of, of public opinion polls. And so one of the, the key resources I used was the Roper Center for Public Opinion Research. And the reason it was so important to gather so much data, because over time, the key to understanding how public preferences shift is getting survey questions asked the same way at, at different time points. And what that allows us to see is how the public opinion, how responses were changing. And so I gathered as many public opinion questions as I could that related to attitudes toward crime and punishment. And so these are uh, support for the death penalty, support for spending more on prisons. There's also questions on whether the public thinks the courts are too lenient, whether the public thinks the role of prisons should be towards punishing or rehabilitation. So dozens of questions asked repeatedly through surveys from 1950 to the present. And then I was able to look at all these and examine exactly how public punitiveness was shifting through the decades. Now, these data allow you to make this argument about the role of public opinion. What did you find? Um, are policymakers driving public opinion on crime? Or is the public driving the policymakers? What's the story that you, you ultimately tell in the book? Sure. It, it turns out that it's the, the public is, is, driving, is driving the bus here. And, of course, politics and criminal justice is a complicated process. And so thing, uh, factors do reinforce each other. And you could envision the public moving more punitive and then a politician making a speech in response to that and other members of the public hearing that speech. So you can envision this back and forth always happening. But analysis after analysis, regardless of the time period I focused on, showed that public opinion shift tended to shift first, and then the, the political reaction, the response by, the, by political leaders in the criminal justice system followed. So if the, the overwhelming momentum was coming from public opinion. Now, what we haven't yet talked about is the role of the media. Um, and in the book, you, you deal with the, the, the role that the media, particularly newspapers, play in, in this uh, relationship between changing public opinion and changing policies from policymakers and the way it moves back and forth. Would you talk about the, the role that newspapers and the media play in this uh, story that you tell? Absolutely. Because as I found more and more evidence that the rise of mass incarceration was a response to an increasingly punitive public, that begs the question, why was the public becoming more punitive? And it turns out, just as you allude to there, Heath, media coverage of crime was the critical factor. And so what we have is crime begins rising in the 60s and continues through the 70s and 80s. And media is covering crime more and more. The more the crime rate rises, the more media attention. And, of course, media coverage of crime 
uh, tends to have very specific characteristics. Media tend to over-report violent crimes, over-report crimes committed by racial minorities, and tend to focus on crime in a very particularistic, almost sensationalist way, emphasizing the nature and the specifics of that exact crime. And what this does is has a uh, combined effect of as the crime rates going up and more and more attention in this particular way is being devoted to rising crime rates by the media, this translates into an increasingly punitive public. Now, um, when we get to this level of, of newspaper consumption, particularly as you look back, I mean, your, your book isn't just about the, the near term. It's really going way back to the 1950s. And if we think about the 1950s and 60s and where people were getting their news, it, it was primarily in local news outlets. So this does raise the question, is, is what you found mainly a, a national story or is it consistent across the country? Is this way in which uh, local news has covered crime uh, been relatively uniform when you look to the different parts of the country or is this something that is sort of... Um, happening in different ways in different communities. The, the local national contrast you bring up is, is absolutely fascinating. And this was something I wanted to really think through for the, for the book and this research, because you're absolutely right. So much of crime and, and exposure to crime and media coverage of crime, we might think of as being a local issue. So the first thing I did was I wanted to understand how crime changed at the local level versus the national level, and where does crime behave in different ways across local areas? And of course, across states, the crime rates differ. Some cities have more crime than others. But if we think about how crime changes, is the crime rate, whether we look at property or violent crime, increasing or decreasing, it moves in similar ways across the U.S. And I looked at the 10 largest uh, metropolitan police areas. I looked at all the states and I looked at the national level and the crime rate, and this is again, both property and violent crime tends to increase and decrease almost in, there's important variation, but for the most part, it's uniform patterns in parallel. So then the changes in media coverage might also be similar. And so I looked at Six different newspapers across the country, different parts of uh, different uh, geographic areas. And sure enough, whether they're covering more or less crime is following these parallel tra trajectories. So it's a counterintuitive finding that the even though crime rates, how much crime is being committed differs across regions, whether the crime rates going up or down is shifting in parallel throughout the country. So the local story becomes the national story. Now, much, much of the way in which we think about this today seems to be different than in the 1960s and 70s. Would, would you take us a little bit up to our, our current environment where there has been much more attention on mass incarceration and some at least of the trajectory of incarceration has, is not nearly as steep today in the recent time period as it was in the 1980s and 90s. So, what has there been a change? Is, is that a is that assertion correct? And and if if it is, what's changed? Is it been the, the media coverage or the way in which uh, the public is viewing this issue? Um, take us to uh, our contemporary time period. Sure, there's definitely been been a change. 
And we're really in an interesting time period in terms of thinking about mass incarceration in the U.S. And one of the most notable aspects is prominent politicians of both parties, both Democrats and Republicans, have called for criminal justice reform. And if we look at the public opinion data, like we were talking about a few minutes ago, the high point of the public's punitiveness was the mid to late 90s. And since that time, the public's been becoming less punitive. So as the crime rate's been going down since the mid 90s, the public, through declining media coverage, has actually noticed this, has become less punitive. Now, we're still a punitive country, but less punitive than at that high point in the mid 90s. And so the the current political environment uh, seems to have picked up on this and is noticing that the public's moved in a less punitive direction. And this helps us understand why we have politicians from both parties calling for a criminal justice reform. And and do you anticipate major criminal justice reform at the national level and in the next Congress, for instance, put on your prognostication hat for a second, is the the model that you have put together based on the past suggestive of something to uh, to anticipate in 2017? Well, definitely suggests uh, it suggests changes and how how big the changes are going to depend on a couple a couple factors. So one thing we have to keep in mind, the U.S. has become such a punitive country in terms of how we punish major changes need to take place to essentially undo what was been done to get this country back to the level of other advanced industrial democracies or to even get us back to the type of criminal justice system we had in the 60s or even early 70s. And so the amount of change that has to occur is massive. So will we see that level of change? That's hard to say, but I'm definitely optimistic that we will see continued calls and and real reforms in the coming years. The key factor, though, I think, is both the crime rate and media coverage of the crime rate. If the crime rate continues to decline, I predict uh, the public will become even less punitive and the criminal justice system will follow. If the crime rate goes up, then a lot hinges, as we've discussed, on media. If media continue to cover crime in the if it bleeds it leads fashion rising crime rates could really start the process all over again of of a more punitive public and the criminal justice system following but media has a lot of choices and we we see this more recently with media sometimes presenting a more nuanced view showing talking about the root causes of crime or what policies might be uh the best approach to addressing crime and also some media coverage of imp- of serious imperfections in the judicial system. And if media provide the public with a more nuanced, comprehensive view, rising crime rates don't have to translate into a more punitive public. So it really depends, I think, on what what crime does and what media does in the coming years. Yeah, the, the book, again, is Incarceration Nation, How the United States Became the Most Punitive Democracy in the World. The book is published this year by Cambridge University Press, and the author is Peter Enns. Peter, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Heath. I really enjoyed it.
When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.